time. The rest of you, I'd like you to open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapters one uh, or chapters two and three. Genesis chapters two and three. And as we open the Word this morning, let's uh, just take a moment to go before the Lord in prayer, shall we? Father, we come to you this morning in Jesus' name. We thank you for your Word. Father, I, I want to lift up uh, to you our sister Paula, who's just uh, having trouble with her knee, but uh, just it's kind of been a, a round of one thing or another uh, this uh, past year, just uh, kind of out of joint. And I pray that you would touch her body and um, bring that full and complete healing. And Father, we want to give you thanks and praise for your blessing. We want to uh, to thank you this morning publicly in the assembly for your uh, watch care over Alan Boland, your provision and safety for him. But we pray, Lord, for him and for your people who are in Japan that know you, that in every practical way they will be able to manifest the love of God in Christ Jesus and give an explanation of the confidence they have in a sure foundation that is unshakable even Jesus Christ and Lord that you will use those who know you to bring light into the darkness in the aftermath of all the sadness and tragedy that has occurred uh, and the um, tremendous cost of rebuilding in Japan. Lord, uh, we pray also this morning for Mary O'Shea in the course of her chemotherapy treatments as she goes again this week on Thursday for a CT scan update. We ask you to bless her this week with peace, and we desire for her with all of our heart good news from the scan. You are the great physician. We ask your healing power in her life. We give these things to you. And now, Lord, open your word and touch our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the first things that I want to say right out of the gate this morning, uh, starting as we look at your study guide and your outline, and you see that it says, born again, life out of death, I just want you to know that has absolutely nothing to do with today's message. That uh, I was in the process of talking about this with folk on Friday, and we were kind of going around and talking about it a little bit, and I realized that uh, I was just kind of muddying the waters, and so actually between uh, Friday afternoon and Sunday morning, I completely revised the message, totally rewrote the outline, forgot to change the title. <laughs> so, so if you see that this morning, uh, we'll get there someday, but that's not, that's not what we're talking about this morning. Another thing that I want to say as kind of an, an opening, generalized statement, kind of overarching our whole study of the book of Genesis, and this really applies to, to all of Scripture, I want you to remember that the Bible only has one author. Okay? There are 40 different writers, 
writing over 1,600 years in 66 books in our Bibles, but there is only one author. Now, the reason I say that is uh, I bought a whole passel of new commentaries and language study books to, to dive into Genesis, and I have been uh, plunging in in earnest. And quite honestly, uh, one of the struggles that I have in bringing these messages is knowing what to leave in the kitchen and what to serve for dinner on Sunday morning because I, I just I really want to bring out all the salt and pepper and spices and the utensils, you know, and just and tell you everything. But I'd have to have you about five days a week in order to get all that across. And that's just not going to happen. But but I come on Sunday morning and I think, what wow, what can I bring? But in the course of doing a lot of reading and a lot of background, and I particularly have purchased evangelical scholars in the last twenty years. It seems like people forget that the Bible has one author. They get so focused on, on a textual critical approach to the, to the scripture and they talk about the, the editor of Genesis or, uh, you know, the writer of Genesis or some even use the old term, the redactor. They never even talk about Moses because, they, first of all, they don't think Moses did it. They think somebody else kind of put it all together. And they look at it as if it's a standalone document, as if it doesn't have a place in all the rest of, of Scripture, which it does. And as if the words of Genesis are not somehow connected to the words of other parts of the Bible. For example, in Genesis 2-7, when the, when the Scripture says God breathed into Adam the breath of life and he became a living soul, when you come to what went on in the upper room after the resurrection, John puts it this way, Jesus appeared to them, the doors and windows having been shut or barred. They were closed, they were locked in. Jesus shows up in the midst of them. And, uh, and John says he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, we don't normally call attention to breathing. All of you are breathing here this morning, and, and, and none of us has turned to one another and says, my goodness, Mary, you're breathing. Marge, you're breathing. This is amazing. You know, we don't call attention to that because everyone breathes. And Jesus, in his resurrected body, it was a real body. He said to Thomas on the other occasion, check out the nail prints, put your hand on my side, see if I'm not real. He was breathing. Why did John say he breathed on them? Because it was a special breath. It was a special action. And don't think for a minute that even though John wrote that 1,500 years after Moses wrote the other statement, that the author of Scripture doesn't have both of them in mind. And that the, the breath that occurred in the upper room, was it's the same terminology as in Genesis, where God breathed into Adam the breath of life, and the disciples were breathed upon by Jesus, and something powerful and spiritual transpired. One of the things that we need to understand in the study of Scripture, um, the technical term is the analogy of faith. And it means, in essence, that the Bible interprets the Bible, and as we look to the Scriptures, it will explain itself. 
is that the author of Scripture, the Holy Spirit, will explain to us spiritual truth by putting together the words and verses that he intends for us to see in the connectivity of the Scripture from start to finish. God has given us a message. It is a message of his love to us and his love for us that we need to understand, and he has woven it seamlessly from start to finish. It's really one of the miracles of inspiration. That 40 different writers over 1,600 years of human history in 66 different books could tell us a story that is so interconnected and interwoven, even across cultures and three languages at least, that, that the Holy Spirit has given us a seamless whole. And when we come to, to Genesis, my thesis for this whole series is that in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, we have the seed of every important truth in the Bible. Every doctrine in the Bible of significance, not like there's any that aren't significant, but <clears throat> some we, we can say are relatively more significant than others. You don't have to know everything there is to know about demons to know how to be saved. That's an important message, how to, how to be born again. But every doctrine <clears throat> of significance has its root in Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. It is the foundation, it is the beginning place. And so this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to begin to look at what went wrong. I mean, God made Adam, made Eve, put them in a perfect paradise called Eden in this marvelous garden. They had everything they could possibly want. They had daily fellowship with God. They had communion with Him. They had each other. They, they had all the lushness of the garden. They had everything available to them. What went wrong? Why are we in the mess that we're in today? And in order to do that, we have to understand a part of that early covenant, that test that God permitted to occur within the Garden of Eden and what we call the fall of man and how it focuses on this tree of knowledge of good and evil. So if you'll turn and look in Genesis chapter 2, I just I want to read you the sections that pertain to this. First of all, verse 9. Look in chapter 2, verse 9. And out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then in verse uh, 16, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you shall surely die. And then in chapter 3, look in verse 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and gave also to her husband, and he ate. A uh, husband who was with her, and he ate. So we're told in Scripture that in this perfect paradise, God placed a tree. There are two trees, actually. A tree of life and a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that that tree of the knowledge of good and evil became a testing point and the occasion 
of the fall and the sinfulness of the human race that was incurred as a, as a result of that, and all of us have been affected ever since. When we start to talk about the origin of evil and the origin of evil in humanity, one of the things that we have to, to just reckon with is that there's mystery here. There are some things that we're probably never going to fully ferret out. We're never going to completely uh, comprehend. There is mystery here. But there are some things we can say about this that are absolutely true because the Scripture affirms them. And when we make the true statements, then we, we can recognize that within that there is this mystery but that there are some things we can count on absolutely for sure. First of all, love must be free, or it's not love. And in order for love to be free, there must be the opportunity not to love. Now, this is not new. This is something that we've been over before, but just by way of reminder this morning. If someone is forced to care for you, do for you, be with you, there is really no satisfaction in that relationship. Something that is required, demanded, you can hardly say that prisoners who are in jail, uh, being served their meals, you know, through the bars, perhaps they're in solitary, uh, that there's no love relationship that exists between the prisoners and the guards. Oh, thank you for bringing me my food today. I love you so much for being so good to me. I, I mean, there's just, there's just things going on there that have nothing to do with what we would call a desirable relationship. There's no choice in that equation. And even so, in, in relationship with God, if we don't have a choice, then love doesn't exist. Love does not exist where there's not the freedom to turn aside. And God did not want the human race, starting with Adam and Eve, to love Him and respond to Him and follow Him because they had no choice. He wanted to give them the opportunity to say no to Him so that their saying yes to Him would be voluntarily out of their desire and passion to know Him and to love Him. Then we can say that God did not create sin and evil, even though He created the potential. There is no way, biblically, in all the character of God as it is revealed in Scripture, that you or I can go back and say, God caused evil. He did not create the evil, he did not put sin in the heart of man. He did not predestine Adam to sin. Even though he knew that Adam would sin, and he prepared the plan of redemption from before the creation of the world. You can look at so much Scripture and document the fact that, that redemption and the story of redemption and even the works that we are to, the good works that we're to walk in today were prepared beforehand from the foundation of the world. You go all the way back. Ephesians 2 tells us this. And so we know that God 
knew the outcome because he's God. And he knew the choice that would be made and had already made perfect provision for it, but he did not predetermine that Adam had to sin in order to bring about the fulfillment of some plan. God's plans and Adam's choices coexist without God being responsible and with Adam still being free. I think the Bible teaches that pretty clearly. Adam was not required to sin in order to fulfill some predetermined plan. But when I think about that, friends, I I have to tell you that it amazes me. It amazes me that knowing what God knows, which frankly is everything, that knowing what God knows, that he made us anyway. Because, and, and you can each apply this to yourself, but this, is, this gives me great comfort. Knowing what God knows, knowing that Adam would sin, knowing all the misery that would come into the world, knowing all the junk that I would do, he nonetheless looked down through history and saw me, saw my name, and he loved me. And he said, I'm I'm putting a little drama in the Trinity back before time, but, but this is how I imagine it. God said, I will do all of this because it is worth it for me to have Paul in my family forever. God knowing the outcome and the tragedy and all that would follow. And knowing that my redemption would require the death of his son, nonetheless said, I am willing to go through with this. It is worth it to me. That is kind of an overwhelming reality to me, that God loves you and loves me that much. And according to the right, uh, the book of Hebrews, Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. We are that joy. We are what held him to the cross. And the glory of redemption and the marvel of the wedding feast and the family of God. Man, that is just amazing. The other thing that we can recognize as we go back to these early chapters of Genesis is there is a test going on here of obedience that is in the form of a covenant. And even though it does not use technical terms, a lot of biblical scholars are agreed that there are the terms of covenant here. That God is establishing a criteria upon which a relationship is going to be based. And what he says to Adam and Eve is, here is everything in the garden for you. I have provided everything for you. I have given you everything you could want or need. It's beautiful to behold. It is good for food. It is pleasant in every way. I will walk with you every day. We will have fellowship and you will be co-regents with me. You will rule over this planet in communion and fellowship with me. And you will be my ambassadors to this planet. You will have dominion over the earth. This is 
This is the covenant that I'm making with you. I will be your God. You will be my people. And we will share this, this beauty together. But there's one thing. There is a tree in this garden from which you are not to eat. The day you eat of it is the day you will die. This relationship will be severed. It will come to an end. And there will be consequences in your life. And the description of those consequences is, you will die that day. Now, you are free to walk with me and to enjoy everything else. Or you can choose to go in that direction on your own and it will cost you your life. It will cost you a relationship with me. That is the choice. And from Adam's uh, standpoint, if, if Adam were to keep fellowship with God, it would result in immortality and eternal life. And if he were to disobey, it would result in his death. God's commitment was to offer life. Adam's commitment was to offer love and trust and obedience to God. And so, the covenant was established in the early environment, and Adam and Eve were were given that opportunity, and the stage was set. Now, let's go and look at the tree for a moment. One of the first things that I want to call to your attention, it is the tree of knowledge. Now, Language scholars come back to this phrase, and there is some disagreement. Some say it is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they, they link it all together in one descriptive term and talk about it being simply the tree of moral awareness. They do not highlight the knowledge part. They highlight the, the whole piece and say that the issue here is this was a tree of moral awareness. It was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Others look at it and see a, a different uh, explanation in the language, the syntax of the verse, where they're saying it is the tree of knowledge. That knowledge is the crux of the issue. Intellectualism, rationalism is the issue. And it brings about an awareness of good and evil. Do you see the difference in that? And that's an important distinction because if we look at this tree as simply being a tree of moral awareness, The day you eat of it, your eyes are going to be open, you're going to recognize sin, and and the game is over. Or, the pursuit of knowledge in and of itself is a problem. Those have a slightly different nuance of meaning. And I favor this latter understanding, that this is the tree of knowledge which results in an awareness of good and evil. 
and that the pursuit of knowledge in and of itself in this circumstance in the garden is a problem. Andrew Murray, who was a great revivalist, devotional writer, many of you have read his books. Uh, he was a Dutch Reformed pastor and, I think, theologian who pastored in South Africa at the turn of the last century, 1800s to 1900s. He was a principal person in South Africa in the great revival that broke out throughout the English-speaking world in Wales, in the United States, in Azusa Street, and, and other places around the English-speaking world. There was a great revival that broke out in about 1900, 1904. Andrew Murray was kind of the key person in South Africa and one of the leading uh, deeper life teachers that came out of that revival era. And he spends a great deal of time in more than one of his books talking about the tree of knowledge and the problem with knowledge and the problem with the pursuit of knowledge in and of itself as building up the arrogance and independence of human beings as opposed to the trust and the dependence upon God that comes from a humble walk. And I want you to recognize, going back to verse 9 of Genesis chapter 2, that there are two trees in the garden that are singled out. They're highlighted. There is a tree of life. And there is this tree of knowledge. And I believe that these two trees represent for us, even today, the very same choices that we have to make globally concerning our whole life, the direction of our life, and particularly every day we're confronted with this same kind of choice. The tree of life is a real tree, first of all. It's not, it's not a, a metaphor. It's a real tree there in the garden. But it represents a way of life. And who is life if not Jesus? I am the way both the truth and the life. Jesus says, I am the living water. Drink of me and you will not have thirst deep within your soul. I am the living bread. Eat of me and you will have the substance of life itself. Peter says we have been made partakers of the divine nature. So here in the garden is a tree of life that represents trusting faithful obedience to God. What does that look like? That says, Lord, I don't have all the answers. Lord, I don't know everything there is to know about everything. I don't know what's around the next corner. But I trust you. I'm investing my, my confidence in you. I don't have to have all the knowledge. But I do have to have a relationship with you. I choose that relationship. I will walk in faithful dependence and obedience. I will follow you. And I have available to me the tree of life. But it means that I will not necessarily be eating of the tree of knowledge. Knowledge, on the other hand, represents an opportunity for me to make my own choices. 
Knowledge is power. Give me enough information and I can decide for myself. I want the facts. I want to know how the stock market's going to go. I want to know how the earthquake is going to turn out. I want to know how my life is going to develop. I want to know how I'm going to be able to pay my mortgage and my bills. I want to know the facts. If I have the facts, I can make the right decisions. I can choose my path. I can make uh, the choices that are good for me. I, I can determine my own destiny. Just give me the facts. And friends, human beings from the garden have been pursuing independent knowledge that will provide for them the information they need to act as God and to make their own mind up and their own choices. Here are these two trees in the midst of the garden and they represent two ways of life. One of them is a way of faith and the other one is a way of independence based upon knowledge where I can do my own thing. And when you read, we're going to study the temptation in more detail next week. And when you get into that, it is desirable to make one wise. I will be smart like God. That's a part of the issue. Another thing that we need to recognize about this tree of knowledge is that it's a real tree... And God made it. There's nothing intrinsically wrong with the tree. You follow me? This is in the Garden of Eden. God created it. He put it there. It says He caused all the trees, verse 9. It says, out of the ground He caused to grow every tree, every tree that is pleasing to the sight, good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God planted this tree. And when Eve looked at it, uh, the devil pointed out to her what we already know. It was good for, the, for food and pleasant to the eyes. So the tree itself was not the problem. God made the tree. The problem was the, the act of disobedience in eating from the tree. And therein, uh, to me also, is a, is a lot of encouragement as well as a parent. You know, sometimes kids make bad choices. And sometimes we parents want to beat ourselves up for those choices. And, and I just want to remind you that here we have the perfect parent, God, and the perfect environment, if it wasn't for that neighborhood, you know, my kids would have, well, here's the perfect environment. Here's the perfect parent. Here's the perfect situation. They still made bad choices. And the potential to get it wrong does not in and of itself constitute blame. We've already looked at the fact that God is not to blame for Adam's sin. Adam made a choice. God made the tree. Adam is the one who chose to eat of it. And, and, I, and I hope you recognize by now, because I, I always have people say to me, well, if God just hadn't made the tree, we wouldn't have had a problem. And while that sounds simple, just remember, without the tree, there is no love. 
And of all the things in the universe that matters most to God, love is really right up there, high in importance. God values genuine love. He is love, and he values love. And love has to be free. So that tree had to be there. But it was not the evil thing. It was the very fact that God said, and and people through the years have tried to speculate what the tree was. Was it an apple tree? I mean, that's the tradition, right? Everybody, whenever you see Adam and Eve in the garden, you know, in the temple, they got an apple in their hand. We don't know if it was an apple. We don't know what it was. I don't know why people picked apple. Maybe they just love apples and think they're so delicious. Uh, there's another thing that uh, probably doesn't even need me to, uh, to deal with, uh, but I will anyway, just in case there's any lingering doubt in anyone's mind. Some have suggested that the real sin was sexual intercourse. And there's a whole theology built around that, that, that vilifies sexuality and makes sexual intercourse the problem. Nothing can be further from the truth. This is a tree that has fruit on it. It is not a metaphor for sexual activity. Furthermore, in chapter 1, it says God made them male and female, and he blessed them and said, Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Sex is God's idea. He built it into the original plan, which he said is very good. So this has nothing to do with sexuality. Here is a real tree with real fruit that is very much like any other tree in the garden, except that this tree, God has basically put a boundary around and said, don't eat of that tree. This is your test. I want to know if you love me because you want to. So you can have everything else here, but don't eat of this one tree. It is the tree of knowledge. When I say that the tree itself is not bad, I, I want to make the point that knowledge itself is not bad. I'm not advocating this morning that we all be ignorant. That's, that's not my appeal. I'm not suggesting to you for a heartbeat that having an education and having training is a bad thing. It can be a bad thing. It can lead you in the wrong direction, but you can be arrogant and prideful and stupid at the same time. And have no knowledge whatsoever. You don't have to get an education to be dumb. There's no corner on that. And two of the most intelligent people of the Bible, from a human standpoint, two of the most educated people in the Bible, were two of the most greatly used by God, Moses and Paul. And if you look at Moses, you cannot deny that he had the finest training of his day. That Moses was groomed, raised, and groomed, and educated, and trained in Pharaoh's household. These are the people that built the pyramids. We still don't know how they did that. You know, how many of you, when you were growing up, you saw in your textbooks, you know, the, the, the picture of the ramp? You know, this is how they built the pyramids. They hauled these big bricks up the ramps that weighed, you know, like four tons apiece. They just, they pulled them up the ramp. Somebody finally did the math. And they figured out that if that was how they did it, the ramp would have to stretch from here to Algonquin and, and, and be, you know, have nice round. It was not possible to do it with ramps. And so then they, the ramp would be more of a miracle than the pyramid. And then they said, well, okay, here's how they did it. They used water elevators. They used a pulley system and they, they had this big box that held water and they pumped the water up into the box 
And as the water filled up the box, you know, the weight kind of offset it and, and pulled the stones up. And then they took the stone off and, uh, the, you know, then they did it the other way. And they don't know how they did it. They don't have a clue how they pulled this off, really. These people were amazing. They were brilliant. They, they had an advanced culture. They were great physicists. They were great mathematicians. They were good in geometry. They had so much going for them. Moses had all of that training and all of that background. And, and he had military training and history training. Don't think these people were ignoramuses. Moses was a brilliant man. I will say that after he left Egypt, God spent another 40 years having him lead around a bunch of smelly sheep in order to to get him in a place where he would be able to be an effective shepherd for his people. And and when he finally appeared to him in a burning bush, Moses was determined that he had nothing to offer. May I say that he had been humbled. And he was now in a position where God could use him. But God used him with that rich background because Moses knew the place where it belonged. And he bent his knee before God. And in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, not only was he in line to become the the leader, the leading teacher of Israel, but he had also had all of this background in Greek culture and, and, and Roman Uh, civilization and social life. Paul was well-rounded, well-educated, brilliant. I mean, you can't read his writings and not recognize he's brilliant. Paul had amazing ability. And yet, in his own testimony in Philippians chapter 3, he says, everything that was gained to me in the natural realm, I have counted loss for the excellency of knowing Jesus Christ, my Savior. I want to know Him and the power of the resurrection and fellowship of His suffering to be conformed to the image of His death. I want to know Jesus. And friends, if you understand the place of education, bending the knee and bowing the head and heart before Almighty God and saying, Lord, You know. And this is merely a tool. Because the, the, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And you have to bend your knee before God and recognize who He is in order to put knowledge and training and education within its place because it becomes a tool in the heart of a humble person. But apart from that recognition, it leads to arrogance, to academic isolation, to a kind of scholarship and rationalism that, that defies the character of God. And I have to tell you that as I've been reading all the writers, I mean, I bought a passel of commentaries and, and language study books to, to delve into to Genesis so that I made sure I understood the issues of the day. And I bought authors, evangelical authors, who have written in the last 20 years, and, I, and I'm digging into them, and sometimes I just, it just galls me that they come at the text with such... An, an arrogant perspective in such an erudite way that, that they're looking at the text of the Bible as if they can figure it out and decipher it and dissect it and, and explain it and all of a sudden they're ripping it apart and taking the heart out of it. And where is this humility that bows before Almighty God and says, Oh Lord, You know. 
I am but a babe. Teach me. Teach me. You know, and I will tell you that all of my life as I have prepared to preach, I bend my knee and bow my heart before God and say, Oh God, I am a babe. Teach me. Because we have the Holy Spirit, John says. You have the Holy Spirit. You have no need of anyone to teach you. Don't, don't take that wrong. God gave teachers. But you have no need of anyone to teach you. You have the Holy Spirit and you all know. And what he's saying is the author of Scripture resides within you. He is your guide. Come to him first. Allow him to put Scripture together for you. Allow him to dot the I's and cross the T's and make the connections. And as you study the Scriptures, the Holy Spirit will weave the fabric together into that beautiful, seamless whole that will make amazing sense. These two trees represent two ways of life. Humble, faithful, obedient dependence upon God. The tree of life. There is life in Jesus. Or, you can have knowledge and independence and make up your own mind and call your own shots and make your own decisions and be your own God. There's the choice. That's what these two trees represent. And when you get over to the temptation scenario where Adam and Eve are standing there in front of the tree, yes, they were both there. I mean, Eve did not. There's nothing in the Scriptures that says, Adam! Oh, Adam! Come see what I found! It just says, And she gave it to her husband who was with her. They were both there. And as they looked at the tree, they saw some interesting things. She noted that it was good for food. Arthur Pink, the Baptist preacher and theologian, says that each one of these elements appeals to each part of our being. She looked at the tree, said it is good for food, which was physical gratification to the body. And then it was a delight to the eyes. It provided aesthetic beauty and emotional satisfaction. It was lovely to behold. That's the gratification of the soul. On the way over this morning, I was listening to XM radio in the classical station. Beautiful music. There's one of the classical stations that has all church music in, in, the, in Sunday morning. Great um, Bach numbers and things like that. Yesterday I was listening to a piece that began with a horn quartet. And it reminded me why I chose the French horn so many years back because the horn quartet was so beautiful it almost brought tears to my eyes driving down 60 headed toward Vernon Hills and just about to cry over this gorgeous horn quartet music our souls 
can be delighted with beauty and the arts and music and painting and color. And Eve looked and said, Oh, that looks like it would make me so happy. And then the real kicker was, it was desirable to make one wise. (laughs) It's not only going to help my body, it's not only going to satisfy my soul, but man, I'm going to be smart. I'm I'm going to have so much discernment. I'm going to be able to figure stuff out on my own. I won't need God. I can do this. We've been there ever since. And that desire to be wise and discerning is appealing to the Spirit. Where it says, I don't have to be in connection with God. I can have my own source. So I can be fat and happy and brilliant all at the same time. And have everything that I want. And I want us to recognize this morning that the essence of temptation has never changed. In the garden, Adam and Eve were faced with temptation on three levels. They had the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. And when our second Adam the Lord Jesus Christ, at the end of his fasting in the wilderness, was confronted by the devil. That is a replay of the garden, only it's not a lush, rich, wonderful paradise. It's a desert, probably very close to the same place. Interesting how things have changed. The devil comes to him with three specific temptations in these three realms. Turn the stones to bread. Ah, that'll satisfy the body. And he has been fasting for 40 days, and the scripture enters that little parenthetical phrase, and he became hungry. Friends, when you haven't eaten a meal in 40 days, and you get hungry, you are really hungry. And he became hungry. And the devil said... (laughs) You can do anything you want to do. You have have power. Why don't you make the stones bread? You know the problem with that? Do Do you recall Jesus' testimony? John records it for us more than once. He did nothing on his own initiative. I do nothing on my own initiative. I only do what I see the Father doing. So unless the Father provided the bread, it was wrong for him to do so. He was living in a dependent relationship as a man on this earth in submission to his Father, living by the Spirit. So that temptation was to gratify his flesh in an illicit way. And then the devil offered him all the kingdoms of the world. Everything he could want. You you can have all the palaces. You can have all the orchestras. You can have... All the museums, you can have all the paintings, you can have all the wealth, you can have all the stock markets. I will give you everything that you see. Desire of the eyes. If you will 
Simply worship me. You can have it. We're going to find out as we go a little further into this why the devil could make that offer with a certain amount of legitimacy. Basically, Satan was saying, I own it, I'll give it to you. Everything you want. If you'll just follow me. Don't miss the reality that we face those decisions daily. I'll give you what you see. What do you want? You just do it my way. And then, when Jesus turned that down, he took him to the pinnacle of the temple and There he stood above Jerusalem in the highest point and said, If you will throw yourself off, you won't get hurt. The Bible says that he will give his angels charge concerning you lest you dash your foot against a stone. So when you jump, you'll come sailing down to a safe landing and everybody will think, Wow, this is really Superman. We'll really follow him. And you won't have to go to that cross and all of that stuff. You can be the hero on your own. The boastful pride of life. John, in his letter to the church at Ephesus at the end of the first centuries, he writes, 1 John chapter 2, he says in essence the same thing. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh... The lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not of the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust thereof, but the one who does the will of the Father abides forever. Friends, temptation always comes to us in those three three venues. Through the body, through the soul, through the spirit. Seeking to lure us in one way or another to gratify natural, normal desires outside the will of God. What do you think? All the other trees of the garden were black and white. You think they had little bitty shriveled up fruit on them? And here's this big, luscious, full color thing over here. No, it says it was all beautiful to behold. God intends us to enjoy beauty. He intends us... To have pleasure. He designed the capacity for pleasure. He intends us to have joy. He intends us to have happiness. He wants us to have these things that He has created for our benefit. But the sin comes in the satisfaction of those passions outside of His will and purposes. And John says, here is the issue. All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is passing away. But the one who does the will of the Father, this one, abides forever. And our choice today basically is no different. Well, it is different in some very significant ways. It's amazing that Adam and Eve were sinless at the time in a perfect world. We, on the other hand, have the infection. We have inherited the sin nature, and we are living in a very tragic world. But we have the tree of life available to us. Abide in me, and I in you, and you will bear fruit. Rest in me. Draw your life from me. 
and I will fill you with my presence, and you will be fruitful. The tree of life is accessible. But the alternative is always presented. You can gratify yourself. And you can acquire knowledge that will make you smart and you can choose your own path and make your own decisions. And God says, I want you to trust me. I want you to commit your future to me. I want you to rest in me. I want you to invest your confidence in my ability to guide your life. I want you to walk by faith, not by sight. I want you to listen to my words and, and obey. And I will walk with you every day and give you my abiding presence as your constant companion. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Or, you can go to the tree of knowledge. Figure it out for yourself. Be your own God. Choose your own path. Take your own chances. But to follow that course is to reject the tree of life and to go down a path that takes you away from God. And whether it's a big choice, will you this day commit your life to Jesus Christ in salvation for eternal life? That's the biggest choice you'll ever make. Will you turn from your sin and turn to Him and repent and, and follow Him with all your heart? That's the biggest choice you'll ever make. Or the little choices that occur in every one of our lives every day. Will you trust me or try to figure it out on your own? Will you trust me or do it your way? Will you rest in me or are you going to work for yourself? Every day. Those two trees. One is life. The other looks good, but it is the way of death. There is a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is death. Father, open our eyes, see the truth. And I pray, Lord, that by your merciful grace, we would be among those who love you with all of our heart and mind and soul and strength and rest in you, trusting you with our lives. You who know best, you who knows the future, you who has, lo who has loved us with an everlasting love, you who are good, intrinsically good. You who only want the best for us. Trust you. And rest in you. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.